Today's passage is 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I, have all my, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam. Good morning. Not too long ago, someone approached me with a very modest, reasonable request. Uh, the problem was that I was busy. I was preoccupied with something else and didn't really want to be interrupted. Uh, honestly, I didn't really want to enter into this person's circumstances because I was already overwhelmed with my circumstances. And you probably don't want to know this about me. But sorry, probably this probably something like this is true for 75, 95% of you one time or another. But the longer I talked to this person, the more agitated I got. And eventually this anger just welled up with, within me. And, and it, it surprised even me. And as I pretended to listen to this person, uh, I, my mind just naturally brought, to my, brought back to my consciousness uh, old grievances. Uh, old offenses. And uh, by the time this interaction was over, my mind was just racing with unkind thoughts. Now, for better or for worse, I, I really don't think this person had any idea what was going on inside me. I mean, I was hiding behind a mask, literally and, and figuratively. And, uh, but I wonder, as I think back about that problem, that, that issue, I wonder, how should I diagnose what actually happened there? One diagnosis is for me to say, that person made me angry. That's one diagnosis. The passage Sam just read would have a different diagnosis, though. That diagnosis would be, Steve, actually the problem is, is that your love is deficient because love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not provoked. Love does not rehearse old grievances. And so... Uh, today we're going to talk about what love actually is. 
And biblically speaking, it's not enough merely to give the appearance of loving others. We're supposed to actually love one another fervently from the heart. Uh, David's prayer in Psalm 19 was, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so today we're going to talk about the nature of love. The, the Greek word is agape, 1 Corinthians 13. It's the most common word that's used for God's love for us, this unconditional love. And last week we talked about why it matters whether, whether or not we love other people. We saw in verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 13 the consequences of lovelessness. Lovelessness nullifies any influence we might have, any knowledge we might possess, any sacrifice that we might make for other people. Uh, without love, we're just more noise in an already noisy culture. Uh, our knowledge and our gift, giftedness don't benefit us or anybody else. And so this is something we just have to understand in the kingdom, our skills, our talents, our abilities pale in comparison to our character, specifically how we actually treat people. And so we're going to look at these 15 short statements in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Before we look at them, I want to just make three quick observations about them. Hopefully they'll help us hear what Paul is saying. First of all, Paul is describing actions, what love actually does. And so there aren't 15 adjectives here. There are 15 verbs here, what, what love actually does. And just like faith without works are, is dead, uh, so-called love without these actions really isn't love. And so by telling us this is what love does, does. This is how love actually treats people. It will, keep us, it will keep us honest. It will keep us from saying things like, well, or, or thinking we would never say this, but it will keep us from thinking things like, oh, I'm really a loving person. I just, sometimes I'm just arrogant toward people because I'm right or because I'm just so superior to all these mortals around me, you know. No, Paul will say, no, actually, love and arrogance are mutually exclusive. Those two things don't exist in one heart. Uh, second, uh, Paul wants to know what love is and what love isn't. And so there are seven statements about what love is. There are eight statements about lo what love isn't. Uh, it's similar to the Ten Commandments. Seven out of the Ten Commandments are thou shalt nots. And so we need to understand here are virtues to pursue, here are vices to avoid. And so when you hear something that love is not, ask yourself, well, do I find that in my heart? Third thing, Paul has uh, Paul's description of love. There's quite a bit of overlap between his description of love and his description of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Both passages include love, joy, or rejoicing, uh, patience, and kindness. And that overlap between love and the fruit of the Spirit should remind us or should inform us that love is produced by the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of love doesn't produce love and empower us to love, then we won't love. It's not a matter of gritting our teeth and acting a certain way. It's about inviting the Holy Spirit to show us how to love and empower us to love so that Jesus actually loves people through us. And so let's dig in. 
uh, I've decided to group and discuss these statements under four headings that I think uh, encapsulate almost all of what Paul is saying here. Uh, I won't talk about every single statement, but I'll come close. So the first thing I would say is that love remains gracious. It's a settled attitude of gracious, generous behavior toward other people. That's what we see in the first two statements there in verse 4. He says, first of all, that love is patient. If you have the King James Version, uh, you will will read, uh, it translates the term patience quite literally, long-suffering. And so, and actually, I love that translation because if you are patient, you suffer a long time with people who, in your mind, your perception, your experience, give you trouble. Instead of having a short fuse, uh, you actually put up with the irritations of other people for a long time. And it's not like you're internally seething all the while and you just barely hold it in. That's, that's called a time bomb. No, the, the Holy Spirit actually gives you this patience, this ability to suffer well for a long time. And so you're long-suffering. And when we do this, we, we actually imitate God because God is slow to anger, Exodus 34, 6. As I like to say, if you, if you make God angry, you have accomplished something monumental because God has a long fuse. I mean, he is slow to anger. We're also told that God is patient. We find that in 2 Peter 3, 9. Why is he patient? Because he's giving us time to repent. He, he wants us to turn from our sin and turn back to him. And so love is patient. That's very gracious. Paul also says love is kind. An active translation would be love shows kindness as opposed to being insulting or cruel or demeaning toward other people. And we're told in numerous places that God himself is kind. One of my favorites is Romans 2, 4. And and that's where Paul says that it's the kindness of God that is meant to lead us to repentance. So it's it's not God's fury, his anger, his wrath that generally speaking leads us to repent. It's his kindness. We realize God has treated me with so much kindness. He's been so patient, so long suffering that it melts my heart. And I say, I want to follow and know a God like that. And so, uh, since love wants the best for other people, at the heart of it, love's motive is if I love you, I want the best for you. And so, since that's the case, if we want the best for people, we too, like God, will be long-suffering, will be patient, and we too will show kindness. Why? Because that's what softens people's hearts. That's what makes people want to follow God. That's what allows people to accept the fruit of our giftedness and our knowledge and our sacrifice. And you know this to be true. If you think of somebody in your life who is impatient, who is harsh, who is unkind with you, they have little or no influence in your life. You might on one level think, they're so gifted, they're so knowledgeable, they're so sacrificial in the way they live. But if you experience impatience and unkindness, it just nullifies the whole thing. On the other hand, and this is true, I think of people in my life that are kind and patient with me, who have suffered my foolishness for long periods, I mean, I would follow them anywhere. I would hear almost anything that they have to tell me, even hard things. And so, 
Love is patient. Love is kind. That's how we keep from, a, that's how we avoid the, the consequences of lovelessness. And that's how our giftedness and our knowledge and our sacrifice means something. Gracious. Love remains gracious. The second cluster statement tells us that love renounces expressions of superiority. And so you're, you're superior to, to other people in some ways, really, you are, actually are. There are other ways you imagine you are. But in either case, the, the second half of verse 4, Paul makes a couple of statements that should make us, make us evaluate how we think about our either actual or supposed superiority, how we think about our strengths, our talents, our God-given abilities. And so why do you think Paul felt compelled to write that love does not brag and love is not arrogant in verse 4? Why do you think he would write that? Well, because the, the, the Corinthians, some of them at least, had a huge problem as viewing themselves as superior to others especially when it came to their giftedness. We saw that in chapter 12, their knowledge and their sacrifice, the three things Paul mentions in verses one through three. And so again, it is likely, and I'm not, I'm not kidding, it is likely that you have some strengths. You're actually superior to other people in, in some limited ways. And so maybe you're more knowledgeable than other people when it comes to scripture or just general wisdom. Maybe you're better, you're more well-read than others. Maybe it's uh, an area of current events or maybe in your career, you probably do have this, this knowledge others don't. Or maybe you have more life experience than many people that you're around. You've been able to do things. You've been able to travel. And so you just, you just know things. You, have, you know the breadth of what goes on in the world. Maybe you have exceptional relational skills. And so whether you're actually superior in these ways or whether you only think you are, the most natural thing in the world for all of us, myself included, when I do it, I just go, ugh. But the most natural thing in the world is to try to draw attention to it and impress other people, to look good in other people's eyes. Well, love doesn't seek my good. Love seeks the good of others. And so in that context, Paul, context, Paul says, love does not brag. And so a loving person seeks the good of other people and bragging does not accomplish that. If anything, if you, you, you know it, you can think of times when people have been boasted about different things. It doesn't make you want to say, oh, give me more. I want to hear about it. No, it makes you want to resist whatever they're offering. It makes you less teachable, less receptive. Similarly, Paul says love is not arrogant. And it's interesting, the verb that's translated is not arrogant or does not act arrogant, it's found seven times in the New Testament. Six times it's in 1 Corinthians, okay? So that would suggest this was a huge problem for them. And so, as you know, people are drawn toward humility, not arrogance. And arrogance is a type of, a special type of lovelessness. It's, it, it communicates a special, I don't love you. Actually, I love me. And it nullifies our strengths, our giftedness, and our sacrifices. And so, where are we going to learn to be uh, humble, not brag, not arrogant. Well, the best place to learn humility is from Jesus, right? The answer is always Jesus because he was the most brilliant, the most gifted, the most sacrificial person 
everywhere he went, he was always right in every debate he had with everybody. And yet he remained gentle and humble in heart. And so if we want Jesus, who was humble from eternity past, he humbled himself by becoming one of us. If we want to learn humility, that's where we flee. The third cluster of statements tells us that love refuses to retaliate, uh, not only externally with our words and our actions, but internally with our, our thoughts. And in verses 5 and 6, Paul seems to have in mind difficult relationships, ones in which you've been offended or sinned against. And as we talk about these verses, you might bring to mind a relationship like that for you. And the offenses that you've, you've endured, they may be somewhat trivial things, kind of no big deal, unintended even, or they might be consequential. They may have been things people intended to do or things that were especially malicious toward you. But in the middle of verse 5, Paul says that love is not provoked. I mentioned this a bit earlier. But if you love someone, you aren't provoked to anger or irritation. You aren't looking for an excuse to go off on this person. You aren't looking for an excuse to retaliate. No, you're looking, you're giving them the benefit of the doubt. You're just accepting them, taking them at face value, hoping for an opportunity to be kind in return. Now, I know that there's such a thing as righteous indignation. I get this, this but a lot. What about righteous indignation? And there, there's a thing such as that. And uh, my count, I think, I think there's about three places in the Gospels where Jesus had this righteous indignation. He turned over tables twice in the temple. And in Matthew 23, he thundered against the Pharisees. I mean, it was, it was fierce what he said to the Pharisees. But the impression that we get from Jesus and from Paul is that was the rare exception. If you've got a plate, I mean, it's like the sprig of parsley. It's the garnish on the side of the plate. It's not the main, di- the main dish, right? I mean, the main dish was, no, love is not provoked. Uh, it's not, he's not looking for a chance to, uh, to thunder at somebody. No, uh, I guess I have my caution is we need to avoid rationalizing our anger by calling it righteous. We need to make very sure it's not just self-righteous. As well, Paul says that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The ESV translates that love is not resentful. And Paul is using an accounting term here. He's like, you don't reason up. You don't, you don't reckon it this way. Love doesn't have a ledger that keeps track of all the ways that people have wronged you. Why? Because there's no desire to retaliate. That's not what love does. Love wants the best. doesn't want to punish people. It wants to change people. And so in my experience, this is some of the most demanding heart-level work that we need to do if we want to love well. I don't know about you, but if I think about a time when someone has wronged me, I think about a conversation. If I think about it too long, those exact emotions come back up, and I am right back in the moment. And love not taking into account a wrong suffered, that requires me to deal with the meditations of my heart. Not just how I come across, not just my appearance, but how I actually think. And that is hard work. It's demanding work. It's spiritual 
work. And so we have to bring those to consciousness and submit them to the Lordship of Christ. In verse 6, I think Paul still has in mind difficult relationships when he writes that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And so negatively, if you love someone, you don't rejoice in their unrighteousness. In other words, you don't gloat when they blow it. You don't look for chances to see them fail, uh, either because their failure makes you good or their failure gives you a chance to lecture them and say, I told you so. No, you find no joy in that. Positively, love rejoices with the truth. You celebrate the truth wherever you find it, even in the life of someone that you don't generally enjoy. And so you love the truth more than you love retaliation, putting people in their place. And this is hard, but if you want the best for people, you rejoice when you see good in their lives. And so love refuses to retaliate against those who give us trouble. We don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but we actually give a blessing instead, as we read in 1 Peter 3. Three, nine. Why? Because that's how God has treated us. That's the way God, present tense, treated us. What if God returned evil for evil? What if God looked for every opportunity to take into account a wrong suffered? No, we imitate God when we renounce retaliation. Finally, the statements in verse 7 tell us that love keeps trusting God on behalf of others. Just keeps trusting God. And uh, honestly, these, these verses are uh, challenging to understand. Uh, New American Standard translates it this way. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And that translation is, is kind of confusing because on the face of it, it, it seems at odds with uh, quite a few other scriptures or other, other things that are, are taught in different places. For example, the idea that love bears all things almost gives the impression that if you love somebody, you'll just put up with whatever they throw at you, that you'll just take it, you'll just let it happen. And that's at odds with what Paul says elsewhere. In, in, uh, actually, in chapter 5, Paul told the Corinthians, this person, you should discipline. You should separate yourself from this person because of the way that they have acted and their refusal to repent. And so what is Paul saying here? Well, I think Paul is saying that love doesn't place limits on what it will endure for the sake of love, what it will do for the benefit of others. And, and one of the best examples of this is how parents treat their children, especially when they're little. Uh, you watch, a, you watch a, a parent with a small child. They don't tell that, that child, okay, son, I'm going to do this much, no more. If you cross this line, you're on your own. <laughs> so parents say, no, actually, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Parents just naturally selfless. I'm going to give to you whatever you need. And if you get in trouble in school, I'm going to be there. And if you get in trouble with the law, I'm going to be there. It will grieve me, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to, I'm going to help you walk through this. I'm going, to, I'm going to trust God to work in your life. I will never give, give up the hope that you will become the person God wants you to be. In short, I will endure 
anything I have to to see you thrive in this world. I think that's what Paul means when he says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so instead of giving up on people, we have this long-term commitment to their well-being, and it involves staying in relationship, if possible. It's not always possible, but if possible, and trusting God to work in their lives. In 2 Timothy 2, 10, Paul wrote this about his commitment to the church. He says, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. Now, if you read that chapter, Paul's talking about his imprisonment. He said, I would be, I would be thrown in a dark, uh, dank jail, prison, if that's what it takes to bring the gospel to people. And so here in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul is urging the same type of no limits love in the body of Christ. So again, this is hard. Very easy to give up on people and say, I'm done with you. But the, so the opposite of what Paul is advocating here would be this cynical, pessimistic attitude which says, I'm not going to put up with your weaknesses. I'm not going to put up with your sins. I'm not going to bear with you. I don't believe God can change your life. I have zero hope that you'll ever be someone whose life counts. Therefore, I'm giving up. I'm done. Paul said, no, love, love bears all things. It, it, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It could be called no limits love. And so that's, that's a high standard. Now, we'll make this qualification. As I thought about this and as I, I thought about many situations, I, I feel like I need to make the qualification that there are extreme cases in the body of Christ where relationships or people become toxic and they become so hateful or so divisive or so abusive that there needs to be a separation in that relationship for a time at least. And again, instead of allowing someone to make you miserable and to poison a fellowship, sometimes that's what what God requires us to do, Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. But again, I say that's an extreme case. The norm is to have this commitment to reconciliation where we work hard to reconcile. We spend time, we expend massive amounts of energy to reconcile. But sometimes, sadly, there are other scriptures that come to play. Gary Thomas wrote a book called When to Walk Away that many people have found helpful. But we see this love described, and it makes us wonder, okay, I've seen these, these, read these 15 things, I've heard them, I see the things I should do, and those are hard. I've seen the things I shouldn't do, and those are equally hard. How do I learn to love like this? How do I do it? Well, one of the things that the Bible is very clear about is that the first step in learning to love like this is to be loved like this. You have to experience this so you'll know what it is. And we are loved like this by God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus embodied everything that we talked about here today. Jesus humbled himself. He became one of us. He lived a sinless life. He showed us what love looks like. 
And, and then he died on the cross as a way to say, I don't want you to pay for your, for your sin. I will bear it. And, and so he bore our sin on the cross. He rose again on the third day. He's now seated at the right hand of God. Then he offers us this, 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 he makes this offer to anybody who will receive it. If you want to enter into a covenant with God, you want this relationship, put your faith in me. And in that covenant, God promises, I will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. He says, I will remember your sin no more. You talk about not taking into account a wrong suffered. God says, trust in my son and I remember your sin no more. I will never throw it in your face. I'll never make you pay for it. And in this, this covenant, God says, I will put my very spirit within you, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of love. You, I, will pour my, my, I will pour love into your heart through the Holy Spirit, and you will experience my love firsthand. And if, you, if you've never experienced this, this may sound like a fairy tale. You're like, what, what are you talking about? I thought I was just obeying rules. No, this is actually an experience where God himself indwells you. And when that happens, you intuitively understand what love is. And so you now get it. Not that it's easy, but you're like, yeah, of course, that's the way God loved me. Therefore, that's the way I should love other people. And so it would be the most natural thing in the world. Not easy, but internally you'll say, yes, that's the way I should. That's the way I want to treat others because that's the way I've been treated by Christ. And so once you've experienced the love of God, you're now able to, to hear, hear, and you're able to begin to obey the three great love commands. Love God, love one another, and love your neighbor. These three great love commands. And that's what we're going to pursue in our 21 days of prayer and fasting. It begins next Sunday morning. We're going to talk about the heart of a disciple. Love is a matter of the heart. How do we cultivate hearts where we really love God and we love each other and we love our neighbor as ourselves? How, how do we actually do that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about taking the next step in each of those categories of love. What's the next step in loving God? What's my next step in loving other, other believers? What's my next step in loving my neighbor as myself? And so the Sunday morning messages and the daily meditations and the prayer guide will prompt us to press into this and do this heart work when it comes to love. I hope, you, I hope you'll register for it. We will not afflict you with a daily email if you don't want it. And so please register. You can do that on the Church Center app or the connection card or the e-blast and uh, sign up for it. And we hope it's a rich time. We want to be a church of disciples who have a heart of love. And so, Father, we're trusting you to make us this type of people you have shown us amazing love in Jesus Christ. It's not just theory. It's, it's very tangible. You, you have shown us what love looks like. God, it's so hard for us, and we balk at it so many times. But deep down, we know that loving others the way we've discussed today is, is good. It's right. It's powerful. And so we ask that you would do this work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.